Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, brought to you by members of the Horror Writers Association, Ontario Chapter, where we discuss the business of horror with a focus on the written word. This is Suzanne Church, HWA Ontario member and author of Soul Larcenist, Book One, in the Dagger of Sacrados trilogy, a novel set in the Ed Greenwood Group's Helmoth series, available from Andre Libram. For the next few podcasts, we are looking at the upcoming StokerCon 2016 convention. This exciting weekend is happening in May at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas and will feature guests of honor, at least a dozen workshops led by some of horror's finest writers, and the presentation of the iconic Bram Stoker Awards. Today, I am speaking with the amazing editor Ellen Datlow, who is one of the guests of honor at StokerCon. Hello, and welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Today, in the chair and the interview portion, we have Ellen Datlow. Ellen Datlow has been editing science fiction, fantasy, and horror short fiction for over 35 years as fiction editor of Omni Magazine and editor of Event Horizon and Sci Fiction. She currently acquires short fiction for Tor.com. In addition, she has edited more than 65 science fiction, fantasy, and horror anthologies, including the annual The Best Horror of the Year, Lovecraft's Monsters, Fearful Symmetries, The Doll Collection, and The Monstrous. This year, she's nominated for a Stoker in the Superior Achievement in an Anthology category for The Doll Collection, 17 Brand New Tales of Dolls, out from TorBooks.com. And she's a guest of honor at StokerCon 2016 in Las Vegas. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you very much. We're so glad to have you tonight. Well, you've edited all types of speculative fiction, from science fiction to fantasy, but yet I'd argue that you're one of the most sought-after editors working in horror today. At this point, do any stories scare you anymore? I'm not sure stories ever scared me. I mean, it's very, very rare. I don't really go for the scare. It's more that I expect the feeling of unease and discomfort and a creepiness. But to actually be scared, I mean, I've said this before, but I'm actually more scared. I'm scared of real life things rather than fiction. I mean, fiction doesn't scare me. It might upset me when I'm reading it or when I'm watching it, but it's not scary to me. In that sense, maybe I'm not the ideal horror reader anymore, but I don't expect scares. I expect to be discomfited by what I'm reading. So have you ever had a story where you read it and you didn't think it really affected you that much? And then maybe you're lying in bed in the dark of night and feeling just that sense of something's not quite right around you, kind of lingering from the story? No, not from stories. I, mean, I think everyone has that experience so occasionally. There was a discussion between Elizabeth Hand and a sleep expert. And there are different types of sleep disorders. And one of those is the thing that you wake up and or you're half awake or you're not sure you're awake and you think there's someone in your room, but you're paralyzed. But I don't get that for reading it. I mean, that's just to me, it's like, oh, sometimes that happens. Like, oh, my God, there's someone in my room. But not from actually reading it. The only time I can ever remember being freaked out reading something was when I was reading Salem's Lot in a big apartment and it was dusk, you know, and I was, wasn't alone, but I think the only other person was, like, in another room, like, three rooms away, which is unusual in New York because most apartments are tiny. But it was a large apartment, and it started getting dark, 
And I didn't freak out, but it's like, it did totally unnerve me. When I wanted to go to the bathroom, I said, Tim, where are you? <laughs> it's like anyone there, let's turn the lights on. But mostly I don't get scared. So no, I don't have nightmares from horror at all, which is interesting. I'd like to bring up something because years ago when I worked for Omni Magazine, we used to do a book column and the book columnist and I had lunch with Clyde Barker, who was starting out then pretty much. I mean, he had published the books of blood, the three books of blood, and that was it. And we were talking about horror and how, why we love it. Murray could not figure that. He said, I can't read it. It scares me too much. And Clive and I are looking at each other. It doesn't give me nightmares. It doesn't give me nightmares. You know, we love it. <laughs> but maybe some people, if they do take it too much internally, they can't continue to read it. If you can't leave it behind, if you actually bathe your mind so much that you have nightmares about it, I'm not sure who would actually read it. Do those readers continue reading horror if they're that unnerved? I don't know. That's a good question. And do you read horror much? I do. I read horror a lot and I love it. But I have known a couple of people that don't read horror for that reason because it does make them uncomfortable and give them nightmares. I have nightmares all the time, but they're never anything to do with horror or anything that I've read or seen. They're always about some kind of anxiety or stress oh, yeah, that's in I mean, my personal life. Yeah, that. yeah. Yes, I, think... I wonder if that's actually the difference between horror lovers and not. I actually never thought of asking people. I mean, I always am in touch. I'm going to Stoker Con, and maybe I'll start asking some people, so do you get nightmares from horror? And most of them, I'll bet, will say no. Stephen Graham Jones just sent me a story. I didn't have a chance to read it for several days. And when he wrote me, he said, this one really gave me nightmares. And I'm shocked because he's a real hard ass. You know, it's like, really? And I read it. It didn't give me nightmares. I read it. But, I mean, it's gruesome and kind of, it's unnerving. But obviously it hits something in his writing of it. It hits some nerve in himself and it bothered him. I'll bet anything that it's unusual for horror readers to be affected that way or they wouldn't be able to continue reading it. Yeah, you're probably right. But now we need to check it out. (laughs) (laughs) You spent your fair share of time reading Slush. You must have a thousand anecdotes, both good and bad, from the depths of that terrible place we call Slushland. Without necessarily naming names, because I don't want you to make anybody feel bad, are there any authors that you feel you discovered? From the slush climbing? Yeah. When I was at Omni Magazine, I had someone reading the slush. I mean, I read it it occasionally, keep my hand in and just to see what it was like. But very few stories were passed on to me. One person who did come out of the slush was Stephen Dedman. My reader at the time was Rob Kilheffer, and Rob knew I was working on an anthology called Little Deaths, I think, at the time. It was a sexual horror. And Stephen's story was not appropriate at all. I didn't feel for Omni. It was horror, but it just didn't feel like the right kind of horror that I've published Omni. But he said, this might be good for your anthology, and it was. And I think it was Stephen's first published story. So that actually came out of the slush pile. I have bought very few stories from a slush pile, but when I was reading slush or at a company that where we read slush, usually it would be the second or third story published by the person. It's rare that I published the first story by someone. I mean, I found out sometimes that I did, like K.W. Jeter's story that I commissioned for a short, short grouping at Omni years ago. I hadn't realized it was his first story. Maybe he'd written one, but he'd never sold one before. So, you know, unfortunately, that's why it's called slush. And yes, people do come out of the slush pile. I don't read slush anymore. But when I've done a couple of anthologies, if I've been co-editing them or with Fearful Symmetries, for example, Cheezine and I set up people to be able to send in stories that would be filtered and then best 20 or so would be sent to me and I picked whatever I liked out. 
But usually even those stories, they're not exactly what I would call slush because I've usually heard the names of the writers if they're that good. Even if I haven't published them, I know who they are. I, I might know their work. So I don't mean to discourage people who are still in the slush pile. I mean, basically keep writing and eventually you will climb out of the slush pile. Your story will be good enough, will be interesting enough that it'll pique someone's interest, whoever is reading it. So it will happen. It may not come to me. I may not publish you for a while, but if you consistently write good work, I will start discovering you when I'm reading for the best of the year. Good point. Are there any um, authors that you've really seen a, a huge evolution from where they were at the beginning of the career to where they are now? The problem with being a short story editor is most of my short story writers become novel writers and then they don't write that many short stories. So in that sense, is that an evolution or is that just like destroying my stable of writers? That's right. <laughs> moving from one part of a career to another part yeah, of a career. Yeah. yeah. And of course, I think most writers who I've worked with have evolved oh, if I've started early in their careers. Omni published Mark Laidlaw's first story as a collaboration with Greg Benford. And it was actually published right before I got there. But then I worked with Mark on another story. He was really, really young then, I think. He worked on another story, 400 Boys. This is a lesson about perseverance. Mark wrote the story, 400 Boys, and it went through at least three or four rewrites. I mean, finally, I was fed up. I mean, I fed up, but I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, forget it. And then he sent it back one more time, and it worked. So he was so intent on getting that story right that eventually I ended up buying it because it was right. Yeah, and that's happened a few times. I mean, even with not necessarily new writers. I've worked with some, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable naming names. Mark, you know, this was a story a long time ago, so it's not a big deal. But someone recently I was working with over like four rewrites, revisions, major revisions of a story that I finally bought. What happened is the story kind of evolved into something very different from when it started. So it was almost like starting from scratch because all these other new elements were in. It was very complicated. All these new elements were thrown in. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That doesn't match. So where did that come from? So we had to go through a lot of rewrites. So, yes, I do see writers evolving. Possibly the most interesting thing that some writers have told me that at a certain point, and I don't know if this is true for every writer, but someone told me at a certain point they knew that they would be able to sell every story that they were self-confident enough and they were actually doing a good job writing that they were able to sell all their stories, that they knew it was good. I mean, they didn't know if it was great, maybe. And I don't think this is with all writers because I have read lots of writers who have been writing for many, many years who have no clue and have written a really great story, a really terrible story. I find that some writers write something very, very personal to them. And I have to say that any time a writer tells me when they send me a story, this is the best thing I've ever written, I know it's going to be awful. Don't ever say that. <laughs> so that's the I mean, one well, line. This is the killer line. Oh, this is the best thing. Well, it's basically they believe it. And it's like, no, it isn't. It isn't. No, it's, you're too close to it. It's not that great. <laughs> In fact, it's terrible. You know, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Well, you live in New York, and I know that you co-host the monthly Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at the KGB Bar. Mm -hmm. And you also have been a tutor at many places, Clarion, Clarion West, Odyssey. You were even my tutor at Clarion South in Brisbane. You even edited Telling Tales, the Clarion West 30th Anniversary Anthology in 2013. What do you enjoy most about teaching and encouraging and boosting up-and-coming writers? Well, you've just answered in a way, my 
given my answer. What I enjoy is boosting and encouraging writers, but I actually hate teaching. (laughs) That's it. I'm happy I'm only asked to do Clarion West about every five years because I forget how exhausting and how stressful it is for me. And I must be, I'm sure, I know it's six times worse for the poor students because they have to go for six weeks. I do feel I'm giving back and I would never volunteer. I mean, I was asked to do it. I would never say, I am not a teacher. And I always tell, I'm sure I told your class at the very beginning, I'm not a teacher. I don't know I don't, I am not a writer. I cannot tell you how to write or teach you to write. I can tell you what I see is wrong from an editor's point of view. And I do think that's very important. And unfortunately, Clarion doesn't have editors there. And I really think it's a mistake because I get, there are students coming out of there who know nothing about publishing. I know nothing about how to maneuver the world of publishing, and that's a shame. My job is, as an editor, and a few people who have been edited by me regularly have said this, is that I become the editor on their shoulder, and you learn to self-edit by being edited and and rewriting and going to a workshop. That's, I think, a a value that I can give by teaching people what to ask for. My job as an editor I think is to ask questions and to get the writer to write the best they can. That's what I feel my job is if I'm working on a specific story with a particular writer. And I'm happy to do that, but I don't enjoy, I hate teaching. <laughs> I mean, my mom wanted me to be a teacher and I was like, she was a teacher. I said, no, I don't want to stand up in front of a class and lecture. I cannot do that. I cannot lecture. I can discuss. I can be on a panel. I can be in a workshop where we discuss someone's story, but I do not enjoy it's, not, it's more than not enjoying. I feel kind of paralyzed if I have to get up and start lecturing at people. But I do feel it's important. I'm happy that I'm able to give back to the industry and to encourage new writers, whether they're young or not. And some of them are not young when they go to Clarion and the other workshops. Understood. I was one of those who was not very young when I went. You're not as old as some. <laughs> <laughs> they're a bit older, truly. And you weren't. I don't think you were that old. I don't, yeah. know how, I don't know how old you were when you went. I was just around 39, 40. Okay, but there have been older ones. Yeah. <laughs> is the job of tracking stories for the best horror of the year as onerous as I imagine, or do you have a system that helps keep those sort of cogs moving and makes the whole process go smoothly? I do have a reader now. I have someone who helps me who I give the magazines and anthologies that I think are probably either going to not have any horror or very, very little horror in them, or occasionally an anthology that I think is... It's either not horror or it's not a very good anthology. (laughs) You know, I'll I'll kind of look at it and see what's in it and say, oh, boy, you read this. I mean, so it is smooth. I mean, I know what I have to do. Basically, the hardest thing is to get everybody to send me material, to get mainstream publishers to send me a novel that they don't think is horror, but I think is, and to get them to send me a copy and get small presses or just get certain publishers just won't send me their anthologies or the collections. And I really hate reading ebooks. I have to say. I read manuscripts online, and I read Aurealis, and I'll read on my, my Kindle app. But I do not like reading collections or anthologies, especially anthologies. problem with anthologies, when you get an electronic version, they're usually not formatted so that you can go back and forth between the stories. The best formatting for some magazines, I think Aurealis, you can go to the table of contents, you click and you go to the link, it takes you right to a story, and then you can go back to the table of contents. It's easy to maneuver, and most anthologies don't have that, which means they don't even have running heads. If they don't have running heads, I don't know where I am in the book, and I don't remember who the author is unless it's on every page. 
So it's a real pain in the neck to read an anthology on an e-reader, on a, you know, on a Kindle or any kind of e-reader because they're not formatted for it. So that whole process would just be scroll, 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 scroll. Yeah, exactly. And then have to scroll back to figure out where the heck I was. So that's just glitches in the process. You know, I know the process as long as I keep reading during the year. I mean, I've just started. But the big problem is when I'm done, I'm so burned out. I never want to do it again. And it's like, oh, God, I don't want to read anything. The process is you read. And as I read, I take notes or take notes. If I like something, I will give it an honorable mention. If I really, really like something, I'll give it an asterisk so I know to go back to it when I'm starting to read and pick the stories. So it's not that hard. It's just onerous. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because I've tried to cover everything. I really don't want to miss things because I'm always afraid I'll miss the gem that I didn't see. And invariably, I'll forget something. Or I'll find two years later, I'll find a book under my sofa that, oh, my God, I forgot to cover so-and-so's collection. Oh, no, he'll never talk to me again. You know, it's like, oops, I forgot that. <laughs> well, there's always another year. It's an easy process. It's just onerous. Yeah. Well, you have won multiple World Fantasy Awards, Locus Awards, Hugo Awards, Stoker Awards, International Horror Guild Awards, Shirley Jackson Awards, and the 2012 Il Posto Nero Black Spot Award for Excellence as Best Foreign Editor. You're the named recipient of the 2007 Carl Edward Wagner Award, given at the British Fantasy Convention for Outstanding Contribution to the Genre. You were honored with the Life Achievement Award by the Horror Writers Association, an acknowledgement of superior achievement over an entire career, and you were honored with the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award in the 2014 World Fantasy Convention. So, wow, if you had to choose your top three career accomplishments, what would make the list, or do you need a bigger list? <laughs> Well, probably when I won my first Hugo, I was, that was great. That was probably, I don't remember if I won the World Fantasy Award before I won a Hugo, but it might have been. I remember years ago, Shauna McCarthy, Terry Carr, and I were having drinks or something. I don't know what year this was, but it was before none of us had won a Hugo. And he was editing the Ace Specials then, I think. And the second batch, you know, with Gibson and Michael Swamick, that whole series, and Bruce Sterling. And we were all saying, you know, that we, the three of us were discussing, well, who's going to win a Hugo first? We, I don't know, I don't know. Well, both Terry and Shauna did, and I didn't win one for another five or ten years. <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, okay. It's like, well, finally, oh, great, I finally won a Hugo. I don't remember what year that was finally, that I did finally win. So that was kind of a big deal. Of course, not looking back, I mean, starting working at Omni, but at the time I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, Omni was a fantastic magazine. I didn't know I was going to work there 17 years. And it wasn't a goal because I didn't have, I didn't have any career goals. I just wanted to, I didn't even know what editing really meant when I got into the field. But I guess looking back, I'm mean, probably working at Omni was a high point because I had a lot of money to pay writers, which was great. The most money I've ever had. I mean, I'm able to, you know, Tor.com pays well now, and that's good. I mean, pays writers well. I like very much working with Tor.com because I'm basically left alone. It's great when you don't have to answer to anyone, really. I mean, it's unusual when you're kind of your own boss. I don't know. So that and Hugo. I mean, the Life Achievement Awards are so weird. I just feel like, oh, my God, does this mean I'm done? So, I mean, I'm not sure how. I, I feel very weird about those. Um, I was shocked that I won the World Fantasy, uh, the Life Achievement Award, I was really kind of stunned. In fact, 
I think Gordon Van Gelder called me up and I cursed at him. <laughs> it's like, really? Is this your sign that I should retire or something? <laughs> no, no. Well, he was on the board. I mean, he told, you know, apparently David Hartwell had emailed me, but I had just gotten home and I hadn't checked my email yet. So Gordon left a message and I was like, oh, what's going on? So I called him back and said, what's, hap- what's up? He said, have you checked your email? I said, no. And he said, well, you know, getting the life achievement. I said, what the fuck? Excuse me. Oh, I'm not, you know, it's like, <laughs> I said, holy, you know, and anyway, I let out a rant of curses. <laughs> to pick out high points, it doesn't matter. I mean, I love working with the writer. It's a constant high point. And as long as I can still sell anthologies and edit, doing exactly what I want, what I want to do. Each new anthology is a high point, whether they sell well or not. <laughs> but if I'm happy with the job I did. And discovering writers is weird. I haven't really, I don't feel I've discovered anyone. I have encouraged and maybe worked with people who hadn't been recognized before, but the word discover is kind of not what I feel I've done. Although a few people may think I have discovered someone. Well, you were just mentioning how each anthology that you do is kind of a new chance to achieve something. Do you have any advice, any sort of epic piece of wisdom that you want to give editors who are beginning to edit their own first anthologies as ways to do it well or perhaps things they might want to make sure they don't do? Well, you have to be prepared to say no and say no to your friends. If you solicit stories from people, you need to make sure they're very clear. It doesn't mean it's not an automatic buy. If the story doesn't work for the anthology, if you don't think it's a good enough story, you have to be able to say that to your author, uh, to the potential contributor. Anthology editing is time-consuming, and I enjoy it. I love it. It's a project that, you know, it's something that you have a whole bunch of things to do at any given time. You know, you may be soliciting stories from people. You may be sending out contracts and paying people, and you may be editing. What's great about what I do freelancing is I can take a break from reading for the best horror and read a few manuscripts that I've gotten for a particular anthology. And then I know it's time to edit some line, edit something so I can take a break and do that. And if you're going to be any kind of editor, you have to edit. Reprint anthologies are different. You don't edit stories that were already published. I mean, sometimes I'll find something that really bothers me that was missed by in the previous publication. And I'll point that out. But generally, a reprint anthology is reprints. They're stories that were already published. But an original anthology has to be edited. You have to edit every story. If you don't know what I mean by edit, then you shouldn't be an editor. You know, and you should not be doing anthologies unless you know what that means. And to put together a good anthology, some people will wait and will not commit to buying any story. They'll wait for all 20, 30, whatever stories that come in and then decide what to buy. I don't do that. With an anthology, I buy them or don't buy them immediately. If I'm holding on to things I'm not sure, I will tell the author, and there's usually a good reason I'm holding on to it. You just can't sit and wait for all the stories to come in. You have to herd the writers. You know, in two or three months, you know, every two or three months, how's the story coming? You're still working on that. They may say, no, oh, my God, I forgot, or no, I don't have time. I always ask about a third more writers than I need for any given anthology because about a third drop out for one reason or another, or the story doesn't work. And you have to, you know, so certain things that you do as an anthologist. And have you ever had it happen where you liked the story and it was sort of working when it first came in, but as the anthology evolved and you started picking the stories that you wanted to slot in, you discovered that that one story really wasn't going to fit anymore? No, because the stories grow from the first stories that come in. I have a story right now 
I have a vision of what a particular anthology I'm working on now will kind of be when I'm done. I got one story that is very harsh and dark and pretty brutal. And I love that story. and I'm not going to turn it down. I may work with the author to soften a few of the graphic stuff in it. Some of the graphics, maybe, maybe not. But what I need to do and what this makes me realize that I need to push some more dark stories. I don't want it to be all light stories. I want it to be a mix. And his story has forced me into that to make me realize that I've got to emphasize to some of the writers that this is not going to be all sweetness and light, guys. You know, we have to have a good mix here. It doesn't happen very often like that because I've very rarely done non-theme anthologies. The few non-theme anthologies I've done have not sold as well as theme anthologies. So most publishers won't work with them at all. I won't publish them. If I feel that a story fits the theme, if I can justify it fitting the theme, then I'll take the story. I encourage my writers to push against the membrane of, is it going to work for this theme or not? And once in a while, yeah, you get a story sometimes that doesn't work at all. That does not fit our vision for the anthology at all. And that happened with me and Terry for one anthology, that we got a story from a writer. We really wanted the writer in there. And, but it was just such, it was just totally wrong for the anthology. Yeah. So it can happen. I'm not sure he wrote it specifically for the anthology or not, but he offered it to us and it just didn't work. So moving to more of the author side for a few minutes, is there any advice or a suggestion that you could tell an author to include in a story something that makes it bigger? or that would sort of knock them out of obscurity? Elements that you find if you're reading a lot of stories that aren't quite there, can you kind of put your finger on what's missing? Voice. It has to be something that draws in the reader, that does something that other stories do. And it can be voice, tone, point of view, character, venue, you know, or back where it takes place. But it's a combination. It's language. It's really important to use precise language and not be mushy in your language. Using... I don't want to say colorful language, but using language well is going to impress a reader. I'm not saying be pretentious. I don't mean that. But, you know, I see many stories. There's nothing wrong with the stories, but the language is boring. It's boring. You don't want to bore the reader. You don't want to bore the reader with a stock character. You don't want to bore the reader with mediocre language. It's a whole combination of things. Yeah. Okay. What are you working on right now? Anything that you can share with us, or is it all still kind of secret? It's kind of, well, I can share one. We just started soliciting. The HWA is doing our new original anthology called Hallow's Eve, which is a thematic about Halloween and All Saints Day and that period of the calendar. And we'd like, we're also hoping to get some not only American Halloween stories, but outside of the culture. And that's only for members of HWA. But we're going to have an open reading period for, I don't know how long, but I think, in, I can't remember if it starts in May or June. And Lisa Morton's involved in that too, isn't she? Yeah, we're co-editing that. I just interviewed her recently, and she's a huge encyclopedia, so to speak, of Halloween. And Halloween. Oh, yeah, she loves Halloween. Yes, so that's going to be fun. So we've just started soliciting stories from some people who we do actually want in the book for sure. And then there's the open market for the members. We haven't got anything in yet, so I've got... Two books coming out, original anthologies. I have uh, Children of Lovecraft, which is an all original anthology coming out from Dark Horse in September or October, I think. And I've got some great stories in there by Brian Hodge and Olivia Llewellyn and Stephen Graham Jones and I forget who else, <laughs> but a lot of people who I work with a lot. Uh, AC Wise, I think, is in there. And uh, I don't know, a bunch of other people. 
And they have a bird horror anthology called Black Feathers that's coming out next year from Pegasus Books, which is a, only about five or six years old publisher. Bird horror. So is it stories yeah. where birds are kind of the enemy or? It's whatever. I deliberately said, no, I don't want crows to kill everybody. It's not like the birds. That's not what I want. No, I want a variety of stuff with birds as the subject or they don't have to be horrific, just different aspects of birds, but horror stories very much using birds as a motif. Wow, I like that idea. That sounds clever. I'll yeah. be looking for that one when it comes out. When did you say that particular anthology was coming out? I think out? early next year. I'm not sure exactly the date, but it's 2017, that one. Okay. So for the next section of questions, this is going to be more of a flash situation. So I'm going to ask the question quickly, and then you're going to answer it quickly. So a nice short I'll answer. Try. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is just for fun. Okay, this is the okay. fun segment of the interview. So imagine a prison of eternal misery. Is it hot or cold? Hot. If you had to leave Manhattan during the zombie apocalypse, would you take a tunnel or a bridge? Oh, damn. <laughs> bridge. If given the chance to live anywhere but New York City, where would you go? London. On the perfect road trip, would you stay in five-store hotels or would you camp? Five-star hotels, screw camping. I haven't done that in years. I hate camping. <laughs> I used to like it when I was a kid. Oh, me too. Exactly the same. Chopsticks or a fork? Chopsticks for Eastern Asian food, but not for, like, steak. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be fun, wouldn't it? For a night at the theater, would you go to an independent off-Broadway play, or are you more of an epic music girl? Depends on my mood. Sorry. I do both. I'm going to see King and I tomorrow, but I'm also going to see something with Frank Langella on Friday, which is not a musical. Sounds like fun. Okay, well, that's the end of my interview questions. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It was great fun. Thank you for asking good questions. <laughs> and uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell readers before we go? Oh, no. <laughs> Just keep reading, and I'm glad you're readers. And if you're writers, keep writing. Are there a lot of writers listening, I assume? A little of each, yeah. And well, if you're a writer, don't give up. Keep sending things out. I mean, the, the best I had, advice I have for writers is write a story, send it out. Don't sit and wait until you get a response. Write another story, send it out, and keep doing it until you start selling. Sounds like great advice. For more details about Ellen Datlow, you can visit her online at www.datlow.com. That's D-A-T-L-O-W.com. Or you can find her on Facebook and on Twitter as at Ellen Datlow. That's E-L-L-E-N-D-A-T-L-O-W. Everything's more up to date on Twitter and Facebook. My website has not been updated recently. <laughs> uh, I think we might all be suffering from that same scourge. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like, what's the point anymore? <laughs> well, there's so many platforms to keep track of. Sometimes it's hard to keep your finger in all those pies. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks to Ellen Datlow for joining us today. StokerCon 2016 runs from May 12th to the 15th at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. And you can register or get more information at stokercon2016.horror.org. That's S-T-O-K-E-R-C-O-N 2016.horror.org.
you can also meet the HWA Ontario chapter at some upcoming events. In April, some of our members will be attending Ad Astra in Toronto at the Sheridan Parkway Toronto North, so you may run into us there. That convention runs from April 29th to May 1st, 2016, and you can get more details at adastra.org. That's A-D hyphen A-S-T-R-A dot O-R-G. Also in April, for you globetrotters, the World Horror Convention is an annual literary-based event for the horror industry centered around authors, publishers, editors, artists, and others related to the creation and production of scary books. This year, the World Horror Con will be held in Provo, Utah on April 28th to May 1st, 2016. More info is available at worldhorrorconvention.com. That is W-O-R-L-D-H-O-R-R-O-R-C-O-N-B-E-N-T-I-O-N.com. In July, our Ontario chapter will have a booth at Rue Morgue Dark Carnival, July 9th and 10th in Hamilton, Ontario. You can find more information on the event at darkcarnivalexpo.com. That's D-A-R-K-C-A-R-N-I-V-A-L-E-X-P-O dot com. Drop by for giveaways, contests, signings, and to pick up some great horror books. You can find the podcast on Twitter at G-L-H-O-R-R-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. In other words, GL Horror Podcast or on Facebook as the Great Lakes Horror Company. We will have some online contests and announcements coming up, so be sure to follow us and subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, don't forget to check the closet and under the bed before you turn off the lights.